Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, we have another repeat guest. This is Mike Ewall, Director of Energy Justice Network. But we're not necessarily going to be talking about energy so much, but the food that gives the human body energy. How do you like that for a segue? And so Mike has been a vegetarian since 1992, vegan since 1995, and was featured in the documentary, What the Health? which is why we're going to talk about veganism, vegetarianism, the environmental and even ethical implications of eating meat or animal products. So welcome to the Green Root Podcast. Welcome back to the Green Root Podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me, Josh. So, yeah, actually, I'm going to start off with asking a hard question. Is there in your mind a connection between refraining from animal products and working on energy justice issues. Absolutely. Um, when I first was learning about vegetarianism, uh, I was in high school actually when I first heard of it. And all I knew about vegetarians is that there was this girl in my classes who was vegetarian since like birth or something. And she loved horses and we just thought she was weird and no one, like she never preached to anyone. So we just had no idea. Um, but later, when I started getting involved in environmental stuff, someone made the comment to me. He said, you can't be an environmentalist and eat meat. And asked ask me if you want to know the details. And I never asked him. I just thought, that's stupid. And I kept going. So I missed two opportunities. Um, but later, when I ran across a piece called 101 Reasons Why I'm a Vegetarian from Viva Veggie Society, which is just kind of lying around at the place I was working, um, at the time, um, well, when I was 18. And I read that and within two weeks, I was, I was vegetarian. I only held out a whole two weeks because I you know, felt I had to be nice in a social situation. So it was reading about all of the connections between the environmental work that I care about and what we eat that really struck me. It was the health issues as well. So the three top reasons that really get people going vegetarian or vegan in the first place are either for the animals because they care about the welfare of and the lives and the rights of animals that are non-human animals, I should say, because we're also animals, um, or the environmental or health reasons. So for me, it was health and environmental reasons at first. The animal issues um, I had to grow on me because at that age, you know, being raised male in this culture, you learn to not care about any other living being and you have all these rationalizations that you know oh animals are there for us to eat and you know you just don't have to see what happens to them um but you know it's just what what's normal to do so so it took a little while for that to sink in but the environmental stuff that i was getting involved in was just so profound to find that it was the number one cause of rainforest destruction for example um it's the number one cause of water use, of global warming, of land use. Um, some of these things, I'm actually just reading off of a list of things that are gone over in the documentary Cowspiracy, that um, was the same people that put out the What the Health documentary that I was in um, that came out afterwards. But they looked at about eight different categories and they found and they documented how animal agriculture globally is the number one cause of global warming, land use, water use, killing of wildlife, of amount of waste generated, if you count animal wastes, um, depletion of the oceans, destruction of the rainforests, and world hunger and certain human rights issues relating to it. So that's, that's a lot for it to be number one in all those things. 
-hmm. and to see that we have this big movement now that's growing fast around climate change and global warming. And yet this is barely discussed. It's all about cars and energy and not about the other two of the three top causes of climate change, which are just human, the number of humans that we have. So population, which is a topic that no one wants to touch and what we eat, which is another topic that no one wants to touch. It's Mm -hmm. really hard for groups to go and get funding and to advocate for things that involve telling individuals, you know, you need to do something that's very personal um, that is radically different from what you're doing. Um, Groups shy away from that. And so they've actually found when they've studied this um, in Canada, they were looking at science textbooks and they found that the most effective actions on global warming that individuals can do, the two, the, these two of the top three things are just not discussed at all mm-hmm. or barely great, like touched in textbooks on global warming topics. Yeah, well, that's so much good information. And I think you really make the case right there. One thing I would add to that list is pandemics, right? And we don't always know where things come from, but we do know that living in close proximity to animals, that's where most of our diseases today come across. So we're the new ones, but also the old ones, things like smallpox, I mean, across the board, it's because we were living with pigs and stuff like that. So I think that's a huge one. And I think on people's minds a little bit more and more in factory farming particular, that's uh, those are breeding grounds. They think that's where H1N1 came from, and who knows about COVID? But entirely possible the encroachment and possibly the the eating of animals. We don't know, but in all likelihood, right? Right, and then you have all the antibiotics that I learned are fed to animals. Um, most of our antibiotics are going to animals, not to humans. Um, and when I say that, I just qualify non-human animals. Um, And of course we eat these antibiotic residues um, in our foods if we eat meat and dairy. And even if we don't, the fact that they can become breeding grounds for antibiotic resistant strains that we're then exposed to. And so we're hitting a point and we've been at this point for years now where people go to the hospital, they try one antibiotic, it doesn't work. They try another one, it doesn't work. And people end up dying of things that antibiotics should be working on because we have to keep trying to invent new ones because we're just overusing antibiotics mostly mm-hmm. in livestock. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally spot on. And I think this is a tough issue. Like you say, with population, which we've covered a few times on the Greenberg podcast here, which is why we were canceled. Well, we come pre-canceled. I like to say I, I come pre-canceled, so it doesn't matter, but yeah, the population topic, but both of those are in essence, personal choice and, People don't like when you talk about personal choice. So you can say, oh, Burger King, you're evil. And guess what? Burger King probably is evil. But if we stopped eating Burger King, they would probably not be able to exist or they would just have garbage veggie burgers instead, whatever. So it is that connection between, of course, these entities are doing things that are not great. Of course, they're pushing it on us and marketing to us and advertising to us and messing with our brains to make us want it more. But ultimately, personal choice is a component of it, right? So how do we make those connections between it's not just enough to say, damn you, Burger King, or damn you, the ranchers in the Amazon, and also like, well, guess what? We are eating that stuff. So how do you, how do you parse that in your mind? Sure. So this is um, 
a really fundamental issue to a lot of the stuff I do and the stuff I talk about, particularly in my environmental justice workshops. And if you'll um, spare five minutes of this podcast, um, I want to tell a story that helps illustrate this. Um, so when I was a student at Penn State University in central Pennsylvania, I once saw a pickup truck and it had two stickers on it. Um, one of the bumper stickers said something, it was a prologging sticker, like, have you hugged a logger today? And said like almost, I think it was literally that. And the other one just said three words. It said, Smokey needs you. And I was blown away by how those two stickers could be on the same truck. But more importantly, how that second sticker did not have the message on it. It only had black and white letters, Smokey needs you. Now, what does that mean? Like, what is that? So Smokey the bear. So Smokey's a bear? Okay, well, that, I thought the same thing instantly too. I'm like, all right, well, they just say the word smoky and I know, oh, there's this bear that wants me to do something. So I know what it needs me to do. And it got me thinking, how much money did it take so that that sticker doesn't have the message on it, but it's just a key to unlock a message that's already in my head since I was really little. Mm. That's got to take a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what? how many other advertising campaigns are that successful that they just have to remind you of the campaign? And you're like, yes, sir, Smokey, I know what you need me to do. So it got me thinking, who funds Smokey the Bear? Want to hazard a guess? Um, I did know this once, but I don't anymore. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to give you a hint. The same entity that puts out Smokey the Bear puts out things that say, don't drink and drive, tutor kids after school, oh, yeah, wear yeah, a seatbelt, yeah, yeah. wear a condom, pick up litter, all these seemingly good messages, right? The Ad Council. The Ad Council. So who is the Ad Council? They brag that on average in this country, we see 400 impressions per year, more than one ad a day per person in this country. And yet most audiences want to ask that question, who's putting all these ads out? A whole room of people can't even guess it. Something about half the time, one person will be at the ad council. But we see these every day. We all do. And it's like subliminal. We don't even know who the ad council is. So who funds the ad council? How do they get all that money? I'm going to guess they're, it's corporations that are not doing things that we like. <laughs> exactly. So in 94, I saw a full page ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer and said, and now a word of thanks to our sponsors. Thanks. And it had the bottom, that, that had that, that block logo of the ad council in the middle. But the backdrop was all the small print of all these giant corporations, like half of which have probably merged by now. It was McDonald's and Walmart and like you name it. And when I, Looked it up more recently. Well, it's not that recent anymore, but maybe, I don't know, six, seven years ago, when I wrote an article called Occupy Earth Day, which is on our corporations.org site. So if you Google like corporations.org, Occupy Earth Day, it'll probably come up. And it gives the history of what I'm about to say. I found that exactly half of the top 100 corporations in the US have been giving money to the Ad Council in recent years. Right. Now, what are they saying? What is corporate America telling us and why, why are they funding the Ad Council? It's not because we're going to beg, oh, yeah, let's go to McDonald's because they're funding the Ad Council. We don't even know who the Ad Council is. No, that's who they're funded by. Mm -hmm. So it's not for name recognition. So what's the common thread between all those messages? Well, these corporations are doing it from the goodness of their heart, obviously, right? Obviously. <laughs> right. So the key, though, the key to understanding this is Smokey the Bear's exact message word for word. I bet you know it. What is it? Only you can prevent forest fires. Exactly. You just drilled into all of our heads. Only you can prevent forest fires. And the key word in that sentence 
is you. When I, well after I figured this out, I looked on Ag Council's website, I figured this out well before I, they even had a website, but um, I found that they have five criteria for whether they'll take on a campaign. And one of them is that it has to have an individual change focus. Mm -hmm. This is corporate America speaking to us through the Ag Council, changing our culture in a very serious way, saying, don't blame us, the wizards behind the curtain here. Don't blame the biggest economic entities in human history, more powerful than governments. Blame yourself. You're the cause of social problems. Your individual action is the solution to social problems. Don't mess with McDonald's like the high schoolers did when they mailed back those styrofoam clamshells back in 19, or late 80s, early 90s hmm. to Oak Brook, Illinois, to their corporate headquarters and forced McDonald's to stop packaging hamburgers and styrofoam. They are designed to prevent that by distracting people and blaming themselves and turning things into a matter of individual action. Mm -hmm. And so they fund Keep America Beautiful for the same reason. They're like a mini ag council for packaging and litter in the waste industry. Mm -hmm. So, which is why they're listed in the Greenpeace Guide to Anti-Environmental Groups, um, Keep America Beautiful is. So to drill one step deeper, when I was an undergrad in sociology at Penn State, um, not that the school was great, there a lot of issues there, but I did some good professors. And one of them had me read a book called A Different Mirror, A Multicultural History of the United States. And I was fascinated by these two examples that they had where in the plantations in the South, when the plantation owners were finding that their laborers were um, unruly, so to speak, they would racially divide their workforce. Mm -hmm and pay one group less than the other so they would resent each other and fight each other. Right. In Hawaii, it was so deliberate that plantation owners on the sugar plantations were sending each other memos saying, have this percentage of Filipinos, this percentage of Japanese, and situate them like this. And I don't know if I can um, use colorful language on your show, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but the expression, <laughs> um, the shit rolls downhill, I believe, came from this example in Hawaii because mm -hmm. th they had no sewer systems at the time. And they socially engineered it so that one group was literally defecating on the other group. Mm -hmm. And that is how they kept their laborers from organizing against their bosses. Right. So the history of divide and conquer in this country is just baked in of using racism, sexism, heterosexism, using classism even. As long as it's the middle class hating the poor, that's totally sanctioned. I um, mean, hating immigrants, totally sanctioned by both political parties in a lot of ways, but most of the Republicans, um, but it depends on the issue in some cases. And they'll divide us into Republican, Democrat and sports teams, every way they can carve us up and guys fighting each other, they will do. Um, religions and just one more mechanism. But the one thing that's not allowed is to talk like Occupy did about the 1% versus the bottom 99%. Mm -hmm. Then Obama's FBI has to coordinate crackdowns on Occupy camps and the DNC has to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign because they can't let politics like that succeed because those politics are what keep, um, or rather the division politics are what keep the 1% in power. Mm -hmm. So the Ag Council strategy, to get back to your point here, is the divide and conquer strategy taken down to the individual level. Mm -hmm. Is corporations learning to succeed by derailing us and getting us to not just fight each other as groups, but to look at ourselves as the root of problems and the, the solution of problems instead of looking at the biggest, most dominant institutions of our time. Mm -hmm. So while vegetarianism and veganism and whether you're gonna have any kids or more than another kid, um, that 
these are deeply personal decisions. However, it's important that these decisions and all the other things that we need to change in order to get a better world, like all the way we get energy and where food comes from and all those fundamental things about how our society and our industry work, these, even if there are individual changes involved, can be facilitated by institutional change. We have a tax code that rewards marriage, for example. We have a tax code that you can probably argue um, rewards having children. Uh, we have not only a tax code, we have farm policies that reward animal agriculture that make it possible to have a country where meat and dairy can be cheaper to eat to, or to buy at the supermarket than fresh broccoli, right. which some communities don't even have access to. Mm-hmm. And that's completely ludicrous because it costs a hell of a lot more to feed, to grow all these monoculture grains, of course. mostly corn and soy, feed them to animals, feed massive amounts of water, use up a lot of land to make a relatively small amount of meat when you can feed many, many times more people on the same amount of land or water or energy use right. with plant with plant type foods. Um, so the only reason it's affordable is because we have enough money right now. We have enough oil and gas and soil and water to put into the system that allows animal agriculture to exist. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. So while we need the individual changes, we need the institutional changes that facilitate the transition faster. Mm-hmm. But even if we don't do that, even if we don't change our farm bill, for example, we're going to be forced to mm-hmm. within our lifetimes, within much less than our lifetimes, because we're hit, we've already hit peak oil. We've hit peak coal. We are hitting or maybe already hit peak natural gas. We've used up the cheap half and the easy to get half of most of our resources that go into enabling this agricultural system to exist. Right. We depleted much of our soils. We used up a lot of our aquifers. So right now we're at a point where it's just not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find that meat and dairy are just unaffordable over time and that we're going to have to switch. And that's maybe part of what's driving mm. the fact that there are a lot more people going vegetarian and vegan and a lot more popularity of plant-based um, meat analogs, dairy analogs, um, as people start to transition. Um, not that it's gotten in a, unaffordable for most people yet, but it's, go, it's going to go in that direction. Interesting. It's better to do it before we are forced into it. Right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all that. So you're not saying that we don't have any responsibility where you're saying it's mostly on the part of the institutions and that's what's really creating a lot of the push but you're not saying that the individual has zero accountability not at all i mean i do all the things i've had a vasectomy i'm not having kids i drive a hybrid car and i usually don't drive especially now it's a pandemic but even before that um Mm -hmm. haven't been driving much um i'm produced about as much trash in one year as most people do in one day and i've been vegan for for many years now so those are all the big things i got solar on my roof now that i can afford it and um, and that was a, enabled by public policy too, that give tax mm-hmm. credits for solar. So thankfully, you know, institutional change has facilitated um, these personal right. changes. Right. So, so I do all the things, you know, pretty much that one can do, but it's not enough. Right. It's definitely not enough when I watch my neighbors put out massive amounts of trash and I put out almost nothing, you know, unless I'm changing the whole culture, the whole system, right. Right. Where our waste goes, what, how things are packaged, you know, what inf- what institutional um, like incentives there are um, 
for just like everything from taxation to whether we're banning plastic bags and styrofoam to right. all sorts of things. Um, we need to tackle an institutional level to facilitate it being easy for people yeah. to do the right thing. Because we don't want an individual change movement where we say go organic and drive a hybrid car and do all these things that a lot of people can't afford to do. I can't afford to eat organic all the time. Mm-hmm. I would like to. Mm-hmm. So we need to make it so that all of our food is organic. Sure. We need to make it so that everything is affordable and available to people and only really the safe options. The bad options shouldn't be options anymore. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. It's looking at all parts of the equation. And I think that's really important. I think people can disagree on how much of the the piece is the societal aspect versus the individual. But I think it's clear all the above is important. And yeah, like you say, I limit a lot of stuff in my life. And then I say, maybe I look at somebody in my family. I'm like, oh, that's all my year's worth of sacrifices erased in like a month with that. So it's not a reason for me to like, well, fuck it then. But I'm realizing, yeah, I don't pretend like, aha, like there, there, I I didn't buy that thing. And I I did it. You know, I think that's, that's pretty silly. But at the same time, I don't want to be a hypocrite, right? So I don't want to be like railing against the system and then just like being a massive consumer. So just if only for my own consistency and integrity, I'm trying to limit my consumption. But I I think you're right. And and I think it's not available to everyone. And a lot of people don't really have time to think about that stuff. And it's not necessarily affordable all the time. Uh, But at the same time, if a Burger King keeps making bank off a thing, they have no reason to do otherwise. Are we going to create a law why am I picking on Burger King and not McDonald's? Wendy's, all of them, they all suck. Um, but I, I don't see, maybe, do you, do you see a policy shift that would limit that? Or you're just saying that as resources dwindle, that's inevitable anyway? Yeah, part of it is that it's inevitable. Part of it is that um, even just as the amount of vegetarians and vegans start to be a higher percentage, like, I don't know what the current percentage is, but somewhere like, I don't know, half to 1% are vegan and I don't know, probably about three to five or more percent are vegetarian on um, like strictly and many more are close to it. So the market's already recognizing that. And you even see companies like, I don't know, Ben Jerry's offering vegan ice creams and McDonald's and Burger King. I don't know if they're both offering um, vegan burgers now, but I think um, at least one of them is. Um, Pizza Hut just made a deal, I think, this past year with um, Beyond Meat to offer um, like like vegan meat on their pizzas. Right. So uh, so it's catching on, and I think these companies see the writing on the wall. They realize that for health reasons, um, for environmental, and for just mm-hmm. market reasons um, and their own self interest and self preservation, that they at least meet, need to make options available. Sure. Um, now, are they going to ban meat from McDonald's anytime soon? Probably not in my lifetime. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, but we're going to get to a point where a lot of things are going to shift over. And just like some of the oil companies have recognized that they better start investing in wind and solar or they're going to be obsolete, right. even though they're still trying to maximize their profits on oil and gas. Um, at least they realize that diversifying is in their interest. And some of the worst companies out there are at least starting to face up to that reality. Yeah. Well, it seems like that's a positive trend. At the same time, I'm like, do I really want to be putting my money into Wendy's, even if 1% of what they're doing is not as horrible as the rest? You know what I mean? 
but I yeah, guess not- your average individual maybe is not going to be able to afford going to the local cafe and get the $15 veggie burger. They're going to want the two fifty one at Wendy's, but it's still that money in a supermarket and cook it at home and save a lot of money. <laughs> well, that's for, yeah, that's for sure. But I mean, fast food is popular for a reason. And so people don't have to do that. And that's why people have been flipping out so much during the pandemic because they're like, what do you mean? I can't go to the restaurant. I'm going to have to learn how to cook or be in my house or look at my family or, or whatever things they're having issues with. But do you not see the possibility that it is feeding my dollar is going into buying more beef infrastructure for Wendy's, is it not? So how do we deal with that concept? Yeah, that's why I generally don't want to support the companies that are largely bad, but doing a tiny bit of good. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to support small companies when, I mean, I try to consume, I try not to consume, honestly, let's just start there. Let's start mm-hmm. at the top of the hierarchy. Yeah. Consume less. That's number one. And only buy things that you need. I don't, I turn off all advertising. I've got ad blocks on my browser. I don't watch TV really, or now it's all like Netflix anyway. So you're like avoiding all the commercialism. So I don't think, oh, that thing made me want something. I don't go browsing supermarkets um, or supermarkets. Yeah, a little bit, but I meant um, to say shopping malls. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't let advertising influence me. When I see advertising, I'm consciously combating it, thinking of, oh, well, how are they lying to me? Because they all are basically hiding things. So, so I feel like personally, I'm I'm fairly immune to advertising as much as a person can be, because I've learned enough about the companies that are advertising anyway to realize what what they're selling is not a good thing and, and why. But when I do consume things, it's important to consume things from companies that are smaller. Right. that are more local where possible, although um, the right type of product is more important. It's actually interesting. There was a study um, on food systems and whether it's more important to buy the veggie burger that came all the way from the other side of the country than to eat local meat, for example, because there are mm-hmm. a lot of confused people out there that like to defend their meat and dairy eating habits. And they mm-hmm. say, oh, well, local stuff is better. And your veggie burger came from all the way all across the country in California. It's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. But when you look at the impacts of the transportation versus the impacts of the production system that went into it and whether it's the most green so-called beef you can have, you know, the most whatever fair (laughs) produced kind of thing, you're still killing an animal, but you're still using a lot of resources. Um, The resources are far greater to eat a, a local hamburger than a veggie burger from the other side of the country. And so there's really no debate on that. And that's been scientifically proven. And, and um, a corollary to that is I've recently been doing life cycle analysis on waste systems and found, for example, that if you have your trash going to an incinerator in your own home county, it's far more polluting than if your trash has to be hauled by a diesel truck hundreds of miles away to reach a landfill, which usually landfills are closer than that. But um, and often there are more of them than incinerators. So it usually doesn't work that way. But sometimes it does. And when that debate comes up, you see public officials say, oh, the trucking is the worst part. The trucking emissions are terrible. Diesel is awful. Yeah, but it's actually only 3% of the system's impacts. Mm. And here you are using something that's more than twice as bad, that's close to home because you're worried that those trucks are making it worse. No, it's not true at all. So same thing with food. Don't get so caught up in, oh, the travel miles that you look over the fundamentals of what it is that you're eating because the meat and dairy are just far greater impacts 
um, than the packaging or the transportation. Yeah, I think that's a totally valid point. The amount of fossil fuels that goes into creating animal products is off the charts. That being said, if you have an option of lettuce from California and you live on the East Coast and lettuce from Maine, pick the local lettuce. If it's apples and apples. But yeah, that's a really great point. Because in Vermont, I heard that a lot too. The the argument of those apples or the lettuce. And when I'm shopping, I'm often in a dilemma because I have like three main criteria I'm looking at. Like, is it wrapped in plastic? Yeah. Is it organic or is it local? Yeah. And I usually can't win on all three. Good so point. I'm usually like, okay, do I buy that organic plastic wrap thing from California or do I like, so I'm like weighing these. And if I can get two out of three, I think I'm doing well. Um, so yeah, sure. you do the best you can. with your Right. Life. Well, there's no perfection in this, but it's about awareness. Like so many things, realizing these are the factors involved and you know, who knows what the best choice is, but you're at least aware of that fact. Okay. This comes from California, but it is organic. This one is in Maine and it's pesticiding the water courses. So which is better? It's, it's true. So all those pieces are worth considering. Yeah. I, I definitely appreciate that. I want to take it back into the connection between animal products and energy, which you happen to be an expert on with poultry waste incineration, right? So oh, that's an obscure one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So let's, so that's, that's a perfect connection. Yeah. I eat, I eat chickens and I eat eggs and stuff like that. And, you know, so obviously all the other components that we've been talking about are relevant in terms of the environmental impacts with that and ethical stuff, all of that, but there's more to it, right? So tell us about poultry waste incineration. Okay, well, this is probably the most obscure um, connection that we can make on this, but let's go for it. Um, yeah. So um, probably the um, leader in the world in having studied this obscure topic, mm-hmm. um, but um, I got pulled into this through other work I was doing against um, biomass incineration, the burning of trees um, largely and wood waste. And I learned that they were trying to build um, a company that we stopped from building a biomass incinerator in my home county to burn wood. Um, tried to like the same person then we were like look out for this person in case they show up in another community and then i heard like halfway across the country in minnesota they're here and it was a company that was and did um build um a turkey waste incinerator in western minnesota which ended up actually um thankfully shutting down so it was so expensive compared to wind power that the utility just bought it up and closed it down hmm. um but it had been a big polluter it violated its permits um, was illegally taking um, construction demolition treated wood that is not allowed to burn. Um, so there are a lot of problems with that. But there were other proposals, and we stopped everyone in the U.S. about ten of them across the country. Um, several in, in Europe, we help people stop. Um, one in Chile, and um, on both coasts of Australia, also people have fought and stopped them and worked with us to get the information they need. And what's going on here is that you have these renewable energy and climate policies like the ones that Democrats are pushing right now in Congress, the Clean Futures Act, which has the word clean in the title. However, this it would set up a renewable energy mandate nationwide that defines burning um, animal waste, burning trees, burning trash even, to be renewable energy. And so we think we're getting wind and solar. Instead, a lot of communities are getting poisoned by pollution from burning these different things. And some of it ties into agriculture. So, so some of it, like, it depends on the type of animals you're talking about. So if you're talking about poultry waste, it's pretty dry. Mm-hmm. And you have like the poultry poop and the, the bedding, which is mostly wood chips and sawdust. And it's too dry to um, 
used in what I'm, the next process I'm about to describe, digesters. So they generally have been proposing to burn it for energy, and that's why um, we've had to fight all of those. But with other types of animal waste, like hogs and cow manure, it's very wet. Mm-hmm. And so there's, it would make no sense to burn it, although there have been some schemes to try to do stuff like that. They make no sense because uh, there's just too much water in there. Mm-hmm. But they will take that waste and put it into digesters, anaerobic digesters, which are basically like composting in a vessel. You can get methane gas off of that and burn that. And that's not the worst thing in the world to do. It would be better if it were aerobic composting and returning it to the land. But there are a lot of nutrient issues and stuff, which don't go away when you digest it. Um, but you can digest the stuff, make that methane gas, and that's conserved renewable as well um, by this proposed federal law, but also about 30 state laws that subsidize, subsidize is not technically the right word, but they mandate a certain amount of renewable energy in the mix and that your electric bill pays for your power company to buy a certain percentage of so-called renewable energy. And some of that could be coming from things that are burning stuff and the agriculture nexus of that is where they're burning the digester gas from factory farms that have digesters for their waste systems and so the money in your electric bills you probably think if if you're paying attention at all this says renewable you think you're supporting wind and solar and it's not going to the small farms it's not going to vegetable farms it's going to the animal bigger like corporate animal factories basically um, that can afford to have these digesters. And that's not who we want to be subsidizing as renewable energy. And same thing if they're trying to burn poultry waste, but thankfully that's been um, basically shut down in this country. There um, aren't any large scale ones operating. That's awesome. So the impacts, of course, of incineration, number one, it's creating this pathway that incentivizes more production of poultry in a sense, although it's unlikely that that income stream is what keeps poultry going. But for instance, incineration with trash, if there's a, a profit motive there, it's there's an incentive to recycle less, to use less, you know, to recycle not as much and to use more. Uh, so obviously that's a component of this, but it's more the air pollution issue. So when you're burning chicken shit, that can't be a good thing to inhale, right? Oh, definitely not. Um, one of the things we found is that you're going to have a huge amount of nitrogen oxides that trigger asthma attacks. Um, you'll have some of the other traditional pollutants like particulate matter, sulfur oxides that also are bad for your respiratory system, for your heart. Um, the particulate matter increases um, deaths from stroke and heart attacks, um, especially um, during COVID-19. It increases COVID-19 deaths as Harvard scientists have found last year. Um, so a lot of concerns that way. And then they used to, and to some extent still do, and it's pretty hard to figure out because it's pretty um, unlabeled, so to speak. Um, but they traditionally have been feeding arsenic to chickens and turkeys in their feed mm. as a growth promoter to control parasites. So it promotes growth by preventing parasites. And 90% of that arsenic ends up in their waste. So if they burn it, you end up breathing it. And then you have the toxic ash that they want to dump on farm fields. And then you have arsenic contaminated farm fields. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it ends up staying in the meat too. So if you just eat normal chicken and turkey, you are getting exposed to cancer causing arsenic mm-hmm. in the meat at levels that have deemed been deemed too high to be safe in drinking water. But they're allowed to have those higher levels in the meat and dairy that you're, well, not meat and dairy and chickens and turkey in this case um, that you're consuming. 
Yikes. Yeah, that's some scary stuff. And there are clear, clear health impacts from avoiding animal products. I think that's pretty clear. The closest analog that I had in my little career when I was writing articles, this was after being a part of Energy Justice Network when I moved out here to Colorado. And you were aware of this because I believe I consulted with you a little bit on it. But I wrote an article about the Denver Zoo, which was planning to build a basically a shit burning uh, bio bioenergy facility. And the I, it was being ignored. And then uh, I'm not going to claim credit for this, but we wrote an article for one of the local high distribution newspapers. And um, then all of a sudden that next week, the Denver Post or a few days later, the Denver Post basically wrote rewrote my article. And then all of a sudden the next week, the zoo had dropped the whole plans, mostly because the public was like, there's a lot of rich people living near the zoo and they're like, we don't want shit being burned. And it was not just shit. It was also plastic and then some food scraps. And obviously this is different because this would be mostly elephants and they weren't growing elephants for food or any that I know of. So it's a little different analog, but still that concept of, if you haven't heard of it, burning animal crap for energy, they're doing it. And it's i uh, I'm not saying boycott the Denver zoo or anything like that, but you can also boycott them if you want to. But, but that's, that they ended up not doing that, right? So they, they didn't end up doing it, but they were idiots about the whole the whole concept. And it's because basically they were being fed money. So here's like an institutional thing back to that other that other thing. They're like, here's a bunch of money and you can pretend to be green. Like who's gonna say no to that? Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, this is uh there there are a lot of pollutants. So I just wanted to make that that connection there. But let's take this now into the ethical realm. So we talked about environmental stuff. We briefly talked about health stuff. I mean, there's so much information out there about that, that I don't feel like we need to go into that that much, but the ethical component and the Green Root podcast, we're talking about environmental issues. What does that mean? I don't know, but clearly creatures and wildlife or whatever living creatures that ties into it. So whether or not we're talking about destruction of natural habitat, which we also are, and clearly anywhere any farm was once nature so that's always relevant but just the concept of taking an animal and being like you're dead now and now you're in me now i will say that we clearly did evolve with that so i think it's hard to disprove that meat wasn't a component of it now there are of course a lot of evidence suggesting that it was a small component but the, the idea that we're not meant to have that in our body like it's it's automatically like the opposite we only ate plants i don't think that's true but at the same time that is not an argument for always doing that just like yeah we used to just shit where we walked or we used to just club people over the head it's natural well that doesn't necessarily mean that is the right thing to do but i just wanted to kind of put that piece out there and how do we how do we deal with the ethical concept of killing animals and eating them. What do you think? Sure. Um, so yeah, we should come back to the health things. So there are some points on that, okay. but we'll, we, we can. can do this first though. Um, and as far as whether our bodies are designed for it, there's been some some good argument that we're frugivores basically, that our intestines are not designed for this, that we have longer intestines. We don't have these big canines that can rip and tear flesh. You know, Our bodies aren't really designed for eating meat. Um, so even though we can, and we have somewhat over, over history, um, it's like feeding a car, like a really low grade fuel, you know, like our bodies don't, don't react to it well. And that's part of the reason you see so many health problems relating to a lot of meat and dairy consumption. 
Um, but from an ethical standpoint, um, yeah, like we have the ability to not cause pain and suffering. And we have a lot of laws around that when it comes to not causing pain and suffering in other humans. And for the animals that we've decided are the charismatic ones, like cats and dogs, you know, we decided we're going to have animal cruelty laws and not let people go like clubbing the neighborhood cat and dog, you know, into death, you know, and thankfully um, that is not a thing that happens too often because of that. Um, but we have no compunction about doing this to like millions and billions even of chickens and fish and larger animals. And um, like, actually, when I read the book, Eating Animals, it was very eye-opening um, by Jonathan Forbes. Um, it talks about how the most cruel animal um, production we have is actually fishing because with other forms, they at least try to kill the animal quickly. Mm. You know, it knows it's coming up. It's panicked. It's sweating. It's like scared to death and then is put to death. But with fish, we just like suffocate them, mm. pull them out of the water and let them flop around until they die. You know, that that's not so good either. And, and fish feel pain too, you know, just like other living beings do. They're not some, it's not like, I don't know, the Nirvana song where they say, it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. You know, I don't know where they came up with that, but they have some weird lyrics. But anyway, <laughs> but that's not true. Fish feel things. Um, so, so we kind of owe it to the other living beings on this planet to not cause unnecessary pain and suffering. And I think that's fair, you know, they have nervous systems. And yeah, plants, some will like to get obnoxious and say, well, plants feel too. Plants have, they don't have central nervous systems, um, but they are a little more advanced that we often give them credit for. And they have ways of chemically communicating with each other. Um, but if you care about plants that much that you're going to make that argument, then that's a great reason to be vegan and eat more plants. Because if you're eating animals, you're killing way more plants. Because what do you think those animals eat? lots and lots and lots more plants many times more in order to make that animal grow to the size that it is mm -hmm. so so anyway it's a silly argument but it gets made a lot so i figured i'd point that out <laughs> so um one of the things though before i was even vegetarian i learned that veal is particularly cruel mm. that the way they um like veal basically when you're farming cows and beef and dairy um Cows, this sounds stupid to say, it's so obvious, but cows are female, <laughs> cattle are male. And when cows give birth, roughly half of them are going to be male. Well, those male offspring are not bred to be dairy cows. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, sorry, I said that wrong. That's not, that was really dumb. Um, they're not bred to be the meaty beef cows, right. steer, whatever. So they are basically what become veal because they're like, well, they aren't female, they can't produce milk and they're not the kind of males that we want because it's not gonna be the beefy breed. So they put them in these little pens where they literally can't take a step their whole life and feed them an anemic diet and like basically torture them so that they have this nice tender, like whatever kind of flesh that they wanna market as veal. Mm -hmm. So horribly cruel. And a lot of people who are not even thinking of being vegetarian know that veal is like cruel and that they avoid it. Right. And what they don't realize though, is that veal could not exist if not for the dairy industry. So if you're avoiding that cruelty, you have to understand that cows are females that are being, and some may object to this language, but being raped 
basically like in the industry, sometimes they call it a rape racks that they use to artificially inseminate whole mess of cows at once. Right. And so you're basically, your farmers like putting their hands where they shouldn't in these female animals to inseminate them. And then basically keeping them standing still and like trapped for a lot of their life and milking them. And then taking their babies away right away once they're born, um, like far too soon. Um, not that there's ever appropriate time for that. And then basically torturing them. And so like you can't avoid that cruelty without avoiding the whole rest of the dairy industry. So the same kind of thing is true with chickens and turkeys. The chickens are not, um, well, the egg laying ones are the, the females, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so when they have male chicks, those male chicks are not the kinds that are gonna be the ones that they want for laying more eggs, well, cause they can't, or for making a lot of meat cause they're not bred for that. So they just kill them. They just literally grind them up alive, these little baby male chicks that are super cute mm -hmm. and they just like shred them to death. Yep. And if people knew that, it would make it really hard to go to KFC. Yes. Yeah. Especially people have to see that with their own eyes. It's just, yeah. just the whole idea of it is horrifying. Yeah. So, so that's where a lot of the ethical stuff comes in. Like, yeah, there's some like humanely made meat, but you know, they're still murdering the animal. They still have to do some of these basic practices I'm talking about because of just basic biology. You know, they're not going to control that like certain offspring or the gender that they need. Mm -hmm. So they're still killing half of them because they just don't need them. Yeah. And yeah, you know, just the whole system is just not designed to allow humanity. Like there's kosher meat um, for those who are Jewish enough that they want to eat stuff that they uh, think is kosher. And the mm -hmm. slaughter process for that is actually more cruel than even the normal way of killing animals. Mm -hmm. So and just, just having seen and just videos of that, I don't wish it on anyone. Yeah. Just to interject, we are both come from a Jewish background. So for those who want to cancel us for saying that, tough shit you yeah. can't i was raised jewish or mitzvah <laughs> i honestly don't identify with it at this point and haven't for since before that but still been through the process and can we can play our jew card for this one just to to put it out there but that's i think that's completely relevant and so even for the egg industry right so that's all a part of the same yeah same thing yeah it's no different yeah i think I think it's super valid. Now, I think an argument could be made. So to steel man this rather than straw man it. So there is no way that you can be a human without having an impact in some way on the natural world. You can be a breatharian or a Jayan and, and you're still going to, you're still, you're going to be killing insects. I mean, you're going to be inhaling bacteria, virus, you know, viruses, I guess, aren't alive, but things like that. So there is no purity, of course, but I think it's, very clear that eliminating ideally eliminating animal products from one's diet or at the very least reducing them is a it's a clear clear benefit to the natural world there's just really no question so the more that you do that frankly the better it is for the natural world would you agree yeah, absolutely and it's also just ridiculously healthy so that let's go let's go into that topic for a minute sure um so there's the whole What the Health documentary, and I'm in that for just a couple of minutes, and I encourage people to check it out. It's on Netflix, and it just gets into a lot of powerful stuff that I can't possibly summarize in the last eight minutes that we have. 
Um, but the part I'm speaking about, and one of the parts that really hit me the most is learning about um, some of the connections that aren't talked about as much. And one of them is dioxins. Mm. Dioxins are the most toxic chemicals known to science. Um, they are literally 140,000 times more toxic than mercury, which there's also no safe dose of. Mm. And they largely um, come off of the incinerators that we were talking about earlier um, for trash and medical waste and whatever else they're burning, sewage sludge, all that stuff. Not that it gets burned, but most of it thankfully doesn't, but some does. So we're producing these extremely toxic chemicals, putting them out of smokestacks, and it's not mostly the people living next to the smokestacks that get exposed to it. Mm. 93% of our exposure is from eating meat and dairy hmm. because it loves fat and hates water. EPA calls it hydrophobic and lipophilic, which means the same thing. So they, if the dioxins fall on a water body, for example, it's going to concentrate in the fish because it doesn't like to stay in the water, but it, it will stick to the fat of that fish. And then if the fish eats another fish, you know, it concentrates. If a bird eats that, mm-hmm. it concentrates. Or if the fish get ground up and fed to um, to make beef uh, or fed to cows, you know, it's, it concentrates at every step. And so when I looked at the EPA data on this and saw that the number one source of dioxin exposure is beef. And then after that, it was dairy. And after that, it was milk. I'm like, wait, dairy and milk are separate? So if you add them both up, it's the number one source of dioxin exposure. And then you got chicken, pork, fish, eggs, and then you get down to inhalation. So all the top things, the top seven categories are all meat and dairy products. And so seeing that and seeing that milk and dairy combined were the number one source of the most toxic stuff that people get exposed to, and that 93% is from eating animal products. I went from vegetarian to vegan. Like as soon as I saw that, I was like, all right, I got to get this out of my diet. Mm It's like I'm here fighting all the sources of this toxic pollution. Here I am eating it on my pizzas and the pizza barrier took me a while to get over, you know, I had to figure out how to like, eat pizza without cheese. And now of course they have vegan cheeses that actually taste good. So it's mm-hmm. not as hard. But when I first transitioned 20 years ago, it was a little more difficult. So, so learning about that was a wake up call. But at the same time, I also learned about bovine growth hormone, which is that biotech hormone that Monsanto makes that they feed to dairy cows to make them produce more milk in a country where we have an overproduction of milk anyway, enough that the government paid farmers to kill their cows because we had too much milk, but still, you know, we have to make more. So this causes um, utter infections. So you have pus in the milk that wouldn't be there because you're causing these udders to be so big, cows will step on them, they get infected, and then they get fed more antibiotics, of course, in the process of all this. But the most scary part was that that hormone that they're putting in the cow, not that that gets in the milk per se, but it increases the level of a hormone that's naturally in human and cow's milk, which is called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor number one. And that hormone is known to cause breast, colon, and prostate cancers. And actually worse than causing it, it's not so much causing it, just like dioxins, it doesn't cause it as much Hmm. as it accelerates it. So it helps existing cancers succeed. Our body's always fighting off cancer cells. But when you have something like you drink a tall glass of milk and it doubles the level of the free unbound IGF-1 in your bloodstream, then it is enabling and facilitating cancers that are forming and usually being beaten by your immune system. It's helping them succeed, Mm -hmm. which is the most dangerous thing you can have, which is why milk is is very strongly correlated with breast cancer 
with colon and prostate cancer as well. Um, the IGF-1 hormone, there are academic studies that talk about this, um, is correlated with that. And so a lot of people don't think, oh, well, milk does a body good, you know, it's supposed to be good for us. They don't realize that not only is a full dioxin, but it's also got naturally occurring hormones that are, if you're not drinking the organic kind, the organic kind still has it in there, it's just not as high as the non-organic kind, then you're getting exposed to these cancer-causing hormones either way. And so people who think, oh, well, I'm eating the safe stuff, I'm eating organic meat and dairy. Well, you'll have less of that cancer-causing hormone in the organic dairy, um, mm -hmm. but you'll still have it in there, just not as much. You'll have just as much of the dioxins because they don't skip over organic farm fields. It has nothing to do with organic or not. So these are fundamental problems like strontium-90 as well, coming from nuclear reactors, even when they're not having meltdowns, when they're operating normally, they release radioactive pollutants, including strontium-90, which acts as calcium, because we get exposed to it through milk consumption and dairy mostly, and it gravitates to our bones because our body thinks it's calcium, and it breaks down over time, gives us bone cancer and leukemia hmm. from consuming dairy, anywhere downwind of a nuclear reactor, and that stuff can travel pretty far. So there's no safe way. Organic won't help you there either. Yeah, I think that's super important stuff. And yeah, obviously people aren't as aware of that because that's not put out there as much because why would, as you say, the ad council or any entities like that say anything that would harm the corporations that are funding it? Just the same with most environmental groups are funded by large foundations that you trace the money back, it's these large corporate entities that have no vested interest in disrupting the current systems of deforestation or just environmental degradation. So yeah, I think that's why I wanted to have this podcast. Uh, I, I know a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about this. I mean, who, who gives a crap, but it's not, it's something like, yeah, 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 we've heard it all before. It's like, well, I think it's important to get these arguments out there and tie it all together. And so let's just say somebody does listen to this and they're like, you know what? Okay. Okay. I want to do something about this in terms of themselves personally and tying it into the larger world. Would you suggest, should people go, so to speak, cold Turkey, um, cold tofurkey, or should there be a transition meatless Monday kind of thing? And then what on the larger scale, is there anything to, to do, or do we just wait for a collapse? <laughs> Well, we shouldn't wait for a collapse. I mean, basically our systems globally are collapsing and we don't want them to collapse any faster than they need to. Um, we need to try to sustain them. And um, even if humans are going to ex extinct within our natural lifetimes, um, it's still better for all living beings to slow that process down every way we can. And it doesn't lower our quality of life to eat differently. It actually increases our quality of life because we're good. If you go vegan, you're adding about 15 healthy years onto your life. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot to be said for that. And also, of course, for the lives that you're not killing in order to feed yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but just the health and benefits of it are, are worth it alone. So, yeah, I think we should do all the things we can. And Meatless Mondays, if that's the only way you can start, go ahead and do it. Um, but honestly, like, if you're able to do that, you can go further. I mean, why say, okay, it's there's one day a week, I'm not going to kill other beings. I don't have to kill them. I'm going to kill them six days of the week. You know, like if you're enlightened enough to start, then just learn how to cook a little bit. Um, it took me a while. I was eating pasta salad for a long time until I learned other recipes when I first went vegetarian. That was like the only thing I knew how to make. Um, but nonetheless, it's very easy now. You just go on the web, 
you search for any recipe that mm -hmm. there can be a meat version of you just put vegan and then the name of the ingredients or recipe and like all kinds of options come up and just spend a little time learning to cook and it's not that hard and, you know you can eat out and eat fast food and do it the other ways if you want um but doing it at home is even better so um yeah it's not the hardest thing to transition and there are a lot of options out there now that didn't used to exist sure and just as the final word i'm going to give my favorite vegan dish and then you give yours how about that oh boy i have to think of mine now a favorite how about that so i really like uh, lentil garbanzo bean stuff and but they those on their own can be a little bland so put in some sweet potatoes and then some brassica kale broccoli brussels sprouts and then some sort of sauce and i just i really love that i think that's just freaking delicious and it's got all the nutrients and plenty of proteins and you know i'm, I'm not anti-carb so there's there's some carbs there plenty of carbs too so what about you Okay, well, I'll get. I'll say one of the recipes I kind of just like made up, um, and I call it my Thai couscous dish. So whatever veggies you have, it could be frozen veggies, fresh ones, whatever you have. Um, get them, get some couscous, buy it in bulk at Whole Foods or whatever, and well, preferably a smaller chain <laughs> or whatever healthy store. But um, but get couscous, um, throw in the onions first, first, and then other veggies, and then. Um, get a whole bottle of that um, Thai peanut sauce and some lemon juice and just throw basically if you cook the portions I do just throw the whole bottle of Thai peanut sauce in there and then a healthy dose of lemon juice learn to adjust it to your liking and then throw all the couscous in and it absorbs all that liquid and all that flavor and it tastes really good it's one of the quickest most yummy things you can make so yeah whatever you have on you vegetable wise um, experiment throw it in and see what you like excellent that sounds good and uh yeah i'll definitely try that so thank you for that mike sure well thanks for coming on the podcast and really appreciate it thanks josh